like uh, the kind of genre of, you know, Glee, Mamma Mia, uh, that kind of thing where there's, you know, action and then suddenly someone breaks out into song. Uh, growing up, I used to like that. I used to watch uh, things like uh, Elvis Presley. Do you remember those films he did where he'd be doing something and then suddenly he'd break out into Jailhouse Rock? Or uh, Cliff Richards, uh, The Young Ones. You know, these six kids that are down the youth club and then they get a London bus and then they're in Italy and then they start breaking out into song in the middle of the street. I used to love all that. Well, in some ways, that what, what we're going to look at a little bit with this series in our run-up to Christmas. Because over the next few weeks, we want to uh, look at a number of occasions when people connected with the birth of Jesus kind of seemingly broke out into spontaneous worship. And we want you to imagine, really, that the nativity based on Luke would be more of a musical than a play. That there are these kind of, you know, as the action's going along, suddenly it's like they just begin to worship God in these kind of moments. And, uh, and really we want to look at, so what lessons can we learn uh, about the true meaning of Christmas from these worship songs that came from uh, these people that were involved in that very first Christmas. And really, we want to ask two overall questions. We want to ask us, what does this tell us about Jesus and what's he achieved? And what does this teach us about the kind of worshippers that God is looking for? And so this morning, I get to start by looking at the song that Mary sang, if you like. Let's just remind ourselves of a few things, just to make sure that we set our minds back in the scene, back in the day. Because Mary, remember, had been visited by the angel Gabriel, and she'd been told that she's going to give birth to a son, and that she's to name him Jesus, and he's going to be the son of God, and he's going to reign over the kingdom of God forever. Now, I don't know about you, but that must have been fairly big news to Mary. Just think, she is a poor young girl. She's young in a culture that reveres age. She's a girl in a culture that revered men. And she's poor in a culture that reveres, revered wealth. And she's just been told that God has promised to give her a son. And she knows that she's a virgin. She has to go ahead around that. Just imagine what's going on in her head, what's going on in her heart. Then she goes to see Elizabeth and she says, hi, and the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps and Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. And Elizabeth declares to Mary, blessed is she, in other words, blessed are you, Mary, who has believed the Lord would fulfill his promises to you. So by this time, Mary seems to have got her head around the fact that if God can give Elizabeth a baby when she's barren, then he can give me a baby even though I am a virgin. That if God's word is powerful enough to create, if you like, this universe out of nothing, then he's able to speak a word and he's powerful enough to create whatever physical matter is needed in her womb for life to come. And she's believed the angel's promise because he reassures her, with God, nothing is impossible. So it's just worth remembering, this is what's going on in Mary. This is what's going on in her life before, if you like, she has this amazing worship song. And it's worth noting just how well acquainted with scriptures Mary was. Because when you read this song, you realize it's like part Psalms. They're a part of it, which is like Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. 
So whether by reading or listening, she's very familiar with the Old Testament, with the characters, with the story, with how God has dealt with his people. And it's like when she opens her mouth to worship, what comes out kind of comes out in scriptural language. It's like as the Holy Spirit moves her to worship and pray, she chooses a language which is what the Holy Spirit has kind of already recorded and taught her in his dealings with his people. So let's dig in. It'll come up on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles or iPads or whatever else, just turn to Luke 1, 46 to 55, and we'll read what Mary says or sings, really, as to how we're looking at it. Luke 1, 46 to 55. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Lord, we just ask you this morning that you would help us uh, to learn what it is that you want to say to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would speak into our hearts and into our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you right now, right now, we say, Holy Spirit, come speak to us. We open up our hearts. We open up our ears. We want to be taught by you. We want to learn more about you, Jesus. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the first thing we're going to look at is what does this song teach us about Jesus? And we're going to look, on, look at it under five headings. That he's saviour, that he's mindful, that he's holy, that he's merciful, and that he is mighty. So let's start off by looking at the fact that Jesus is saviour. Because Mary declares, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. First and most important thing we learn about Jesus from this song is that Jesus is Savior. He's not a Savior, but he is the Savior. The angels told her to give this baby the name Jesus, which means in Hebrew, the Lord saves. And so right there is the clue. And Mary declaring this baby Jesus was her saviour is really important, but it has been really misunderstood at times over the years. When I was studying for this, I found out that Erasmus, back in the 16th century, provoked absolute outrage with the Catholic Church when he retranslated this first chapter of Luke into Latin. Because in verse 28, when the angel says... The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. That had been used as a prayer. Ave Maria, gratia plena. 
Now, that's probably a completely wrong <laughs> translation because I can't speak Latin. But what it meant was, Hail Mary, full of grace. And that's what they used to say, Hail Mary, full of grace. That's how it was translated. But Erasmus, he went back to the original Greek and he found that translation was very misleading. The angel did not say that Mary was gratia plena, that she was full of grace in the sense that she was able and empowered to dispense grace. Rather, the angel declared that she was graciosa, which again is a mispronunciation But what it meant was that she had been the recipient of God's grace. She didn't have it in herself to give out. She had received the grace and the favor of God. But at the time, in the 16th century, Erasmus' declaration that Mary, even Mary, was a sinner who needed God's grace did not make him very popular in medieval Europe. But Erasmus was right. Mary declares Herself, She recognizes, no, no, I'm a sinner that needs saving. And she declares this baby that she's carrying Jesus, he is my savior. She's not seeing herself as some sinless goddess. But no, no, she says, I'm born in the same humble state as everybody. I need God to fulfill that salvation promise to Abraham as much as any other human being. And so we see this message of salvation lies right at the heart of Luke's gospel. And if you like, that word salvation even is a kind of catch-all word that basically means all of God's promises right through the Old Testament that one day he is going to come and he is going to put right the sin of Adam and the sin of every person that's come from Adam That word salvation is like God's promise saying, no, no, I'm going to deal with that one day. And now is the moment with the birth of Jesus that he is going to deal with it. And so those who are proud and full of themselves will be sent away empty. But those who empty themselves of all other hope apart from Jesus will be filled by the same grace as Mary. Mary does not present herself as a mediator with God, but she presents herself as a sinner who is pointing the way to salvation through this baby that she is carrying. Do you get that? Jesus is first and foremost, Mary declares, Savior. And then she goes on to say, verse 48, that he is mindful. She says, He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Now, this word mindful, it means Jesus really knows us. He really understands us. He he understands how we feel. He, He understands when we're tempted. He understands all the emotions that go on inside of us in respect to what happens in life. He he is mindful of our humble state. He's Because he's walked in these shoes of ours. He's lived on earth. So whatever Jesus says and does, it's from a place of understanding, of being aware. It's not like we can accuse him of, well, you don't understand. Because Jesus will say, no, no, I do understand. I am mindful of your humble state. So when Mary says our humble state, she's not really talking about a a humble attitude towards God, she's really declaring, look, look, we are are weak. We need God. 
We may think we're clever, but we're not half as clever as we think we are. We didn't give ourselves life. We don't sustain life. We can't make the sun to come up or the rain to come down. We are not invincible, untouchable, all-knowing. But actually, we are completely dependent on God for everything. And although much of mankind does not acknowledge that, Jesus knows it's true, and so he treats us accordingly. And Mary says he's mindful of our humble state. Do you know, it's like Jesus has walked in the shoes of our life. He's walked in the shoes of our life. And if at times the shoes of your life seem a bit ill-fitting, consider this. Jesus' shoes have felt more ill-fitting than my shoes at times. He's mindful of our humble state. Men and women who with their mouth declare God doesn't exist, doesn't know them, doesn't care, is unaware, even though they may declare that, Jesus is still mindful of their humble state. He's still, he's mindful of our humble state. Number three, it says Jesus is holy. Verse 49, Mary says, holy is his name. See, for Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He needed to be a sinless lamb. That was the deal. Sinless in that he was completely obedient to the Father. Completely obedient in love, in thought, in action, in speech, in purpose. Every minute of every day, in every circumstance, including when he hung on the cross and the righteous anger of God was being poured out on him for the sin of the world, Jesus is completely obedient In that moment, Jesus was sinless from birth to grave because that's what holy means. And that's why Mary says, holy is his name, completely without sin. If I'm honest with you, I don't really think I can at times begin to grasp the holiness of Jesus because of the world of sin that I've been brought up in and the world of sin that sometimes goes on in my own heart but I do believe it with all my heart. And I think like with Mary, when I get a glimpse, a revelation of the holiness of Jesus, it causes me to worship. I think it caused her to worship. John Brown, a 19th century Scottish theologian, says this, Holiness does not consist in mystic speculation, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks, and willing as God wills. And that's what Jesus did. Every day, every moment, in every circumstance that he faced. Jesus is holy. Are you still with me? Good. Number four. Jesus is merciful. See, she goes on to say this in verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, mercy at root is not getting something that you don't want to get when you deserve to get it. Do you understand that? That's what mercy is, right? A mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. But the emperor Napoleon said, the young man's committed an offense twice and justice demands death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. 
Sir, the woman said, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. But mercy is what I ask for. Well then, said the emperor, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. See, if you don't commit a crime, but you're threatened with prison, you'd cry justice because I didn't do it. But if you commit a crime and then the sentence was imprisonment, you would cry mercy because you did it and you deserve to pay, but you're asking not to. And Jesus is merciful because what we deserve for our sin and rebellion to God is separation from God now and forever. But what he offers is an opportunity not to remain in a state of separation, not to get what we deserve mercy, and actually to receive what we don't deserve, which is reconciliation, which is grace. And Mary says that his mercy extends to all who fear him, from generation to generation, from Abraham to whom the promise was made, right the way down through the people of Israel, right the way down through to today, to people like you and I, if you're a Christian, who have called on the name of Jesus to be saved. I love reading C.H. Spurgeon a famous preacher from a few hundred years ago. I love the simple way that he puts it right on the money. And I read this recently. He said, unless I'm in hell, it's all mercy. Full stop. Unless I'm in hell, it's all mercy. What I deserve is to be separated from God now and forever. So therefore, if I'm not separated from God now and forever, what is it? It's all mercy. It's all mercy. Whatever I have... It's all from the mercy of God. Mary, this unknown poor teenage girl engaged to be married, just got told you're going to be pregnant by God with the Messiah. She's got a few troubles. She's got a few things to explain that others may not understand. Yet it's all mercy to her because she deserves separation. She got reconciliation. And from this reconciliation, she's now going to have an adventure, the adventure of a lifetime. I don't think it's going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. And it all starts with the mercy of Jesus. The mercy of Jesus who is merciful. Finally, she says, Jesus is mighty. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Mary declares this baby Jesus is mighty. And first she declares it personally for her and then more generally. Personally, she says, he's done great things for me. He's mindful of me. He's been merciful towards me. He's done mighty things for me. And then she declares he's done mighty deeds on behalf of his people right the way down through the ages. He has brought down the rulers, the rich, the proud of this world. And he's fed and raised up the physically and spiritually poor and hungry. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, then you need a savior. If you're not a Christian, you need a savior. You need someone who is going to pay the penalty for the sin that's in your life. I have great news for you. Jesus is the savior. Jesus can save you this morning. If you feel this morning that no one cares or understands who you are or how you are, I have great news for you. Jesus knows. And Jesus cares. Because he's mindful of you. 
He understands our humble state. If you have an area of sin in your life which is marring your relationship with God, I have great news for you. Jesus is holy and he's paid the price for that sin. And if we will confess, he will forgive. Because if he wasn't going to forgive, why would he die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin? I have great news for you. Our sin has been forgiven and our ongoing sins can be forgiven through Jesus. If you need God's mercy this morning, for whatever reason, in whatever measure, because of whatever circumstance you are in, great news, Jesus is merciful. He's the master at not treating us how we deserve to be treated. In fact, he's better than that. He's full of grace and therefore he gives us things that we don't deserve, good things. Not only does he not give us the bad things that we do deserve, but he also gives us good things that we don't deserve. He's full of mercy and he's full of grace. If you need a mighty act of God in your life this morning, great news, Jesus is mighty. He does great deeds personally for his people and through his people. So just from this, just from this song, we get glimpses of what Jesus is like, who he is, what's he going to do, and it, it kind of comes out of Mary's mouth. So the second thing we want to just look at is, what does this song tell us about the kind of worshippers that God is looking for? I just want to pick out three things for us this morning. The first one is a worshipper who glorifies Jesus. Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord. And in some translations, that says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, when you put something under a magnifying glass, they don't actually get bigger, but it's as though they get bigger. It's like we can see it as if it's bigger, which means we can see it clearer. And when we glorify or magnify God, it doesn't make him bigger. It doesn't make him great or greater than he is. But what we do is declare something of his greatness. We get to see it. Other people maybe get to see it. We, we get to grasp something of his greatness. And really, that's what's going on inside of Mary. She's catching. She's seeing. She's grasping something of the greatness of the Lord in her own soul. It's genuinely going on in here. She's basking in it. She's reveling in the truth of the greatness of God. And I think a big part for Mary being able to catch something of this greatness of God is because she's taken hold of this promise that God's given her, that she's going to have a child, that though she's a virgin, that this child is going to be the son of God, that God is able to do what he says. The angel commends her for believing that that promise was from God, from taking that promise from God. And you know, the Bible is full of the promises of God. They're clearly stated. And really, they should be food and drink for us as Christians as we go through the world. Because we don't see everything under Jesus' feet yet. And we don't see every illness healed yet. And we don't see every tear being wiped away yet. And we don't see every injustice being dealt with yet. And we don't see Christ face to face yet. And we don't see heaven and what he's prepared for us yet. So we walk by faith and we lean on the promises. We walk by faith and we lean on the promises. That's what I believe Mary did. I believe that's what she's showing us here. 
And the promises of God can take all the weight that we lay on them. And one day, we will discover like Mary that God keeps his word, that what he has spoken will come about in due time, which may not be our time, but it will be God's time and it will be the right time. See, by believing what God had said to her, by taking them as promises from the almighty God, she is glorifying, she is magnifying God in her own soul. And that leads to the second thing that we see. In the same sentence, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And my spirit rejoices. Now, I've got to say, the word rejoices does have the sense of it that something's going to come out. Are you with me? I rejoice. It's hard to rejoice silently. Rejoicing has this element about it. See, what's going on in her soul, in her spirit, which is really the same word for the same thing. It just means what's going on inside of her here. This glorifying the Lord, this magnifying God, this grasping how great God is in here, it causes her to rejoice and it comes out of her lips as praise and worship in the form of this song, this declaration. See, true worship of Jesus in here is what causes true worship of Jesus to come out of here. True worship of Jesus in here is what causes true worship of Jesus to come out of here. If what comes out of here doesn't come from in here, you're singing, you're not worshipping. Now, there's nothing wrong with singing. I like singing, though I can't sing. I enjoy singing. But singing is what people do on the X Factor. It's not worship. It's not worship. And when we, our lives are called to be led in a, in a sense of worship, but also when we gather as Christians like this morning, we are called to corporately worship together. But worship does not start from here. It starts from in here. It starts because we've grasped something of the greatness the magnitude, the glory of God. And I think Mary rejoiced in Jesus and that was expressed as worship out of her lips. And that is the kind of worshipper that God is looking for. I'm going to read you a quote from Packer. It's a little bit long, but I hope you'll think it's worth it. He says, To worship God is to recognize his worth, to look Godward, and to acknowledge in all appropriate ways the value of what we see. The Bible calls this activity glorifying God or giving glory to God and views it as the ultimate end and from one point of view, the whole duty of mankind. Scripture views the glorifying of God as a sixfold activity, praising God for all he is and all his achievements, thanking him for his gifts and his goodness to us, asking him to meet our needs and others' needs, offering him our gifts, our service, and ourselves, learning of him from his word read and preached and obeying his voice, telling others of his worth, both by public confession and testimony to what he's done for us. Thus, we might say that the basic formulas of worship are these. Lord, you are wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Please, Lord. Take this, Lord. Yes, Lord. Listen, everybody. Then, this then is worship in its largest sense. Petition as well as praise, preaching as well as prayer, 
hearing as well as speaking, actions as well as words, obeying as well as offering, loving people as well as loving God. However, the primary acts of worship are those which focus on God directly, and we must not imagine that work for God in this world is a substitute for direct fellowship with him in praise and prayer and worship. It's a great quote, eh, from Mr. Packer. Second kind of worshipper that God is looking for is one who rejoices in Jesus. And then the third one is a worshipper who fears God, who fears Jesus. Mary says his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And I think this word fear can easily be misunderstood. I think it's best understood by the phrase loving obedience. When I read the word fear in the Bible, I think loving obedience. It's not about fearing God because God's mean or unpredictable or nasty because he's not. It's because he's almighty God. And his ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. So it's loving obedience. We love him because he loved us first. And he sent his son to die for us. And the son agreed to come and die for us. We love him because he loved us first. And he showed his love by sending his son for us. And we obey him because he is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator God who loved us first before we loved him. And in fact, not to love a God like that would be foolishness, would it not? If you've got a God who's all-knowing, all-powerful creator and he loves us before we loved him, you would be foolish not to love him, which is why it says in Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To know God, the starting place, is to love and obey him. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise it. We get to know Jesus as we love and obey him, which is why fear is the beginning of knowledge. Because all true knowledge begins with knowing the God who created you. If you don't know God, what does it matter what you do know? You may know lots of stuff. Lots of people in this world know lots more stuff than me. But if they don't know the creator God, what does it matter? What good does it do them? You may be able to make millions on the stock market, but if you don't know God, what does it matter? You may be really clever at working out this and that, but if you don't know God, what does it matter? What does it profit you if you don't know God? God loves worshippers who love and obey Jesus. Mary loved and obeyed Jesus. And if you notice through what she says, that loving obedience leads to he, not me. He, not me. Just notice how many times in this song, what she says is about him and not about her. He has been mindful. He has blessed. His mercy. He has performed. He scattered. It's his arms. He has brought down. He has lifted up. He has filled. He has helped. He. He. It's not all about her. It's all about him. She's focused on loving and serving him, not on herself. See, the truth is you can't worship Jesus if you're more concerned about yourself than him. Can't worship Jesus. Because true worship to God, what he's looking for and what Mary displays, comes as a response. A response that you've realized, wow, this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for me personally. 
This is what he's done for his people. True worship comes out of a place of response in love and obedience. That's what Mary knew. She grasped who this baby was, that she's going to put her trust in him. And so what bubbled up from her inmost being, what bubbled up from her heart and came out of her mouth was this glorious worship, this worship declaring who God is, which was pleasing and acceptable to God. That's the kind of worshippers I think God is looking for. He's not looking for people who can sing in tune. If he was, I could never be a worshipper. He's not looking for catchy tunes or memorable phrases. He's looking for people who have understood, who know who Jesus is, who want to love Jesus, want to receive Jesus' love, want to obey him, and actually from that place let praise bubble up from their heart, let it come out of their mouth. And any worship like that, which is true worship, will be as pleasing to God as Mary's was on this first Christmas. Can I encourage us just to stand up? Because we're going to have an extended time of worship now when we get the opportunity to worship. To worship. Not to sing, but to worship. To worship God. So Holy Spirit, we ask you that now as we come to worship Jesus, that you would help us, that you would help us in our souls to glorify him, to understand again, to catch again, to get a glimpse again of the revelation as to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And what he achieved for us on the cross. And how much he loves us. And how much he knows us and is merciful towards us. Lord, we, we want to worship you. We want to worship you, Lord, in spirit and in truth this morning. We want it to bubble up inside of our souls and come out of our mouths. Lord Jesus, we want to bring something that is going to touch your heart. That is going to be pleasing to you. So we say, Holy Spirit, fall on us now. Come and move among us in power. Come and fix our eyes and fix our hearts on you, Lord.